And I'm Rebecca Lair, and this is The Mashup Americans, the show by, for, and all about people like you and me, the Latinos and Asians, the first gens and the married ins, the 1.5ers and folks who are just more comfortable with multiple cultures. Uh, That's a lot of things. We are all the things. (laughs) All the things. But maybe a big mouthful is a good way to think about being a mashup. You know, because, like, that's what makes mashiness so powerful. Our lives are, like, real full and super loaded up with language and foods and tradition and family and everything. We just bring a lot to the table. I completely agree. And we're bringing a lot more to the table this week with another installment of Mashups to Know, our five-part series highlighting some of the amazing mashups making their names out there who we know are people that are about to blow up. Yes, this week we are talking to Frank Shang of the LA Times. Uh, we talked to him a few weeks back, which was just one week after the opening of Crazy Rich Asians. And I don't know if you've noticed that every Asian American you know is pretty excited about this movie. But you get two of us together and it's kind of all we can talk about. I mean, it, I, yes, I've noticed. And also it's all <laughs> I can talk about because I'm so excited about it. And even more excited about the how shortened the time between things being in the movie theater and appearing on like digital platforms are because I don't go to the movies because I'm housebound with my toddler. But um, <laughs> I, I am so pumped about it. It's a great movie, a great rom-com, which God knows we need at this time. And big and luscious and rich and all these things. And also pumped about representation. We're thirsty for it. And I think it's super interesting because as Frank notes, you know, it may be more for our generation, which is so thirsty for this representation, than even for younger generations of mashups. If you're a kid growing up now and you're Asian, you have a lot of stuff to watch. You can watch Fresh Off the Boat if that's not your thing. You can watch Kim's Convenience. You can watch like... You know, some Netflix movie. Exactly, exactly. And so, like, I just remember a time when I would go around looking for Asian things and I wouldn't find any. And, Mm -hmm. And now I find lots of people and lots of things to watch. Frank is now helping us find all of these Asian things because he's covering the Asian beat at the LA Times, which uh, seems like a really big beat. What a beat, right? <laughs> uh, it's really amazing, and it's so exciting. He he felt like it was being neglected, so he just started covering it and writing about it. And now he is indispensable to the Times, which seems about right. This is a byline to watch. Did you know that subscribing not only helps keep you from missing an episode, it also helps us keep making the show. So if you haven't already, please take a moment to subscribe to The Mash of Americans on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Overcast, literally wherever you listen, and leave us a rating. We want to hear from you. Today, we are so excited to have Frank Shang on the show. Frank was raised in Nashville, Tennessee, but he's an Angelino at heart. He's a journalist and a foodie, and we were just so struck by how thoughtful he is. And he first came to our attention for his Twitter feed, which is absolutely full of dim sum and pastrami and 
burns from his mom. They're so funny. <laughs> it's vicious and hilarious. Um, but he is reporting on the San Gabriel Valley, which is a often very overlooked part of L.A. that is three quarters Latinx and Asian American. So it's basically us. Mm-hmm. It's just clear that he's going places. In fact, I think he'll have a pretty exciting announcement soon, so stay tuned. But he's not leaving L.A. anytime soon. I mean, it's, he's here, I think. It's true. He even put Angelino into his mashup, so he's smitten. It's true. Well, you know, we start all of our conversations by asking how our guests mash up, and this one is no different, so let's get to it. Frank, how do you mash up? Uh, so I'm Chinese-American, and uh, I'm Taiwanese-American. And I want to say I'm an Angeleno because I've lived here longer than I've lived anywhere else. And I say both Chinese and Taiwanese-American depending on the context. Like if I'm reporting out in the San Gabriel Valley and someone is a mainland Chinese person, I might try to talk about how my grandpa's from Chengdu. But like on my mom's side, I'm Taiwanese going back like seven generations too. You grew up in the South? Oh yeah, I'm a Southern Asian for sure. Southern Asians are different. What's always in your fridge? A lot of different kinds of vinegars and wines. I make a lot of chicken thighs, and the way to like make chicken thighs seem fancy is to use like alcohol and acids and stuff like that. So it's like you know I make like adobo, or I make like three cup chicken, but I leave out one of the cups, or I make. Uh... <laughs> Wait, what are the cups? I just want to be clear. I eat a lot of three cup chicken, but yeah. I never thought about the name. Honestly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, there's soy sauce, and then there's I believe sesame oil, and then rice wine. I use sake instead of rice wine. I think that's oh. like the Japanese influence on Taiwan because this is something my mom taught me. And then I leave out the soy sauce and use salt instead. So. Well, this is very interesting because I have recently uh, had to cut soy out of my diet. And as oh, a really? Korean American human being, what, are you, uh, what do you eat? <laughs> <laughs> it's real hard. Okay. Um, what is your bubamisa? No. Like an old wives' tale. Oh, so okay. that maybe you believe, but like, you know, you just right. maybe don't want to take the risk. You know, I don't believe in any of them, but, like, I do run into them a lot with my parents. Like, you know, you can't buy white or blue flowers because, like, I'm not sure. Like, I just keep buying the wrong color of flower because, <laughs> like, for my mom, because it, it always indicates death or they're always funeral colors, you know. And then if you buy red, though, like roses, that kind of in an American context is like a little icky for me to get from my mom. So I'm trying to think of some other colors. Fuchsia. Flowers are complicated. Yeah. I don't want to remind, you know, I'm trying to say happy Mother's Day, not condolences for your, you know, relative's deaths. Last one. What is your comfort food? So... I have a couple. One is like the Langer's uh, number 19 pastrami Russian dressing coleslaw sandwich. Wasn't that what Jonathan Gold had, like one of the last things he ate was his pastrami sandwich? I don't know. I think so. Wow. Yeah. That would be amazing. What's your home deli? Langer's. (laughs) Langer's is. We used to go to Cantor's a lot, Uh but Langer's is like... So my other one is uh, is that there's a place called uh, Sartel Tempura House. You know, it's the grandma and her grandpa that run it, and they make this, like, just a bento box lunch that's, like, chicken katsu or chicken hamburger, or uh, and uh, they're only open, like, between, like, 10 and, like, 2, 2 or something like that. And every time I go there, I'm scared that they're gone because Sartel has changed so much, you know. Um, I find it interesting that your comfort foods are not Taiwanese or Southern. yeah. I didn't eat much Southern food growing up because, you know, we only ate at, like, the seven Chinese restaurants in, in Tennessee. So I, I do make Taiwanese foods for myself, but they're, they're more like my 
my poor foods that I try to make to survive when I don't have any money, uh-huh. <laughs> like dumplings or, you know, uh, like chicken or something like that. So yeah. I heard there's a very important dumpling scene in Crazy Rich Asians. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there is. I really appreciated that, actually, because like I watched it with so many different types of Asians and everyone had like making food with my family while uncomfortable conversations occur. <laughs> you know, memories. So. Wait, so tell us about your Crazy Rich Asians immersive experience. So what were you oh. doing again? You were seeing it with all different kinds of Asians? Yeah. So I'm actually writing a piece on it. And um, first idea was like, let me see if I can go see Crazy Rich Asians with the Crazy Rich Asians. And then uh, I watched it with a group of um, just my friends. You know, I think they're afraid to not like it around me. And then um, <laughs> Not just Asians. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, and then I watched it with um, a group of, uh, like, Cambodians that I met last year reporting on the Cambodian community. And they actually liked it, too, even though it wasn't, wasn't really representation. Just like I can watch Crazy Rich Asians as a non-Asian and be like, I'm first generation and I understand having an awkward conversation over making food. But I also like I know people in weird stratosphere of wealth and in other countries and also like love a romantic comedy. Mm-hmm. And so there's all those things that can exist, too. And so like, yeah, I think I think there are lots of types of representation. I I'm not represented by Henry Golding's Sunlit Apps, you know, mm-hmm. but like <laughs> Frank, I think you're doing yourself a disservice. <laughs> no, no, I've seen I've seen myself. Uh, but like, you know, it, there's no reason I should relate to, you know, someone like that, but you know, you relate to the story and everyone found all these different things to relate to in the story and you know, everyone like found something different in it. And I think it's just a charming movie and so people could kind of see themselves in yeah. it. Yeah. There's one piece of it that like as a first generation Korean American woman, I, I don't have any personal relationship to Singapore or China. There are still scenes that brought just tears to my eyes, just the fact that they were there. Mm-hmm. And no spoilers is that like in one of the very first uh, sequences when they land in Singapore and they are ordering food. Yeah, that was my... Can you describe it? She's with Henry, her boyfriend, the crazy rich Asian. She doesn't yet know that he's crazy rich. And um, his two best friends pick them up at the airport and they go straight to the night mart. Mm -hmm. And they're just like going from cart to cart to cart to cart to cart and Mm -hmm. getting all these different dishes. And she's just like overwhelmed a by like the deliciousness and the colors and the lights and the language and they're sitting there and they have this huge plate and everybody's sharing and everybody's talking and like getting a little drunk and it's like hot and it's just perfect yeah and there's like a kind of attention to detail to that that like any single person Mm -hmm. who has experienced that is like oh you you got it yeah i think a lot of people would wonder why the food scene is in there but like for you know me like one of the best parts of going back to taiwan with my family was just like eating a ton of different food, you know, and they would just flood you with all these foods they want you to try. I was really glad that they had that part in it, you know, because like, and it made me want to go to Singapore and eat there. Yeah, (laughs) totally. I think that's the experience of all mashups. And it's like the first thing you do when, when I go to El Salvador with my family, like leaving the airport on the highway, there's like, you can buy pupusas, you can buy nuts, like, it just it starts the second you land, yeah, and um, it's just part of the kind of intensity of the experience, yeah. Which is why I'm surprised sometimes around white people <laughs> that they haven't ordered enough food. I always order th- too much food. Of um, course, that's not one of my better qualities, but <laughs> it's the best quality. <clears throat> How are you going to find out what this tastes like unless you order it? What do you think this means for like the next Asian movie or one where we get to? 
show another facet of the representation of this vast continent of culture? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think representation matters like most for children, right? You know, so if you're a kid growing up now and you're Asian, you have a lot of stuff to watch. You can watch Fresh Off the Boat if that's not your thing. You can watch Kim's Convenience. You can watch like some All Netflix the boys movie. Before. Exactly, exactly. And so, like, I just remember a time when I would go around looking for Asian things and I wouldn't find any. And, mm-hmm. and now I find lots of people and lots of things to watch. I remember the response after Wonder Woman and women coming out and be like, is this how men feel all the time? I can fucking do anything. And I feel like that's the same experience that a lot of people have had after crazy. It's like, this is what it feels like (laughs) to be like just us all the time. It's amazing. And I also think that there's something to your point, Frank, about youth, right? Mm -hmm. Like when you're watching the movie, you're crying because it's like a thing you didn't realize you needed for the past 40 years. So you like food. Uh, yes. <laughs> and your Twitter feed is full of calls, you know, for dim sum, retweets of food writers, and sometimes graphic eating. Yeah. So how did food writing become something that you were interested in? You know, I I am not a food writer, I guess, so I basically cosplay as one on the internet. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I got interested in food in, in college because it was, like, the most fun way to explore L.A., being able to eat around the city and, like, check out all these different vibes and these different neighborhoods. That was the thing that I felt that made me fall in love with L.A. and made me want to be a journalist. And so food mm. was kind of like the sort of connection between those things. Mm. You know, and then uh, I I wrote this story about a guy named David Chan, and he's a local uh, sort of accountant and attorney, and he has eaten at, like, I think 7,000 Chinese restaurants, and he kept track of all of them on a spreadsheet. And so, like, you know, food also became this way that I began to, like, analyze, you know, sort of Chinese culture and immigration and, like, uh, a good way to basically get into that topic. And and so David Chan, like, you know, he was a third generation Chinese American who was like in his 70s. His eating all of this food was like kind of like a way for him to interact with like a Chinese American identity that he didn't really have. When he grew up, when he grew up, that was a time when there was a lot of discrimination. And so, you know, your parents would try to make you assimilate. Um, and, and so they wouldn't teach him Chinese. They wouldn't really necessarily like expose him to Chinese culture. So when he grew up, he did it himself. Yeah. Has putting a journalist's eye to the community changed your own relationship to your Asianness or and to your identity? Yeah, though I don't I don't know exactly how to articulate it. I start to see like identity and culture as things that are made of stories, you know. Mm. And so, if you tell stories, you can actually add to people's conceptions of themselves if you do it really well, mm. you know. You know that's the standard I always try to go for. Is like if I'm covering. A community. I don't want to just explain them to a mainstream audience. I also want to teach them something about themselves. And that's like one of the more powerful things that journalism can do is it can give people a chance to, you know, see themselves in new eyes. And like, I remember when I wrote about like all the Cambodians who owned the Louisiana fried chicken chain down in uh, South LA. And then I would meet Cambodians after that, and they would reference the story to me, and they kind of had, like, added that to their conception of themselves. Mm-hmm. And like, Well, I think that's something about the power of storytelling and the power of, as you said, giving people their story back in some way or reflecting it back to them is that we're all busy living our lives, 
And sometimes it takes somebody else to say, here's the context. And then you realize you're kind of a figure in a larger story. And that's really powerful. So you're an Angelino, and y'all can't see this. I'm adding y'all because it's from Nashville, (laughs) actually. Frank has a tattoo of a map of L.A. on his arm. Does your mother know you have that? Yeah, yeah, I I did tell her. Um, It was like the day after she had bragged to her friends that that, she would never let her son get a tattoo. Mm -hmm. Wow. That feels right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, but she's okay with it. But you're originally from Nashville, and you came here for college. You said you're a Southern Asian. What does that mean? Well, it means you have a lot of baggage, I think. You're not around that many Asian people. I did go to Chinese school. There were, like, maybe less than a 1,000 Chinese people in Nashville, and we knew most of them. And so, like, we would hang out at Chinese school. Were they all from Chengdu? (laughs) No, they were Taiwanese people, actually, because we're so tribal. You said it's it's a very different experience. Do you mean compared to Asian Americans that you knew growing up in L.A.? or? Yeah, for sure. You know, to fit in, basically, you have to fit in with, you know, white people. And so, like, there isn't a lot of sort of, like, Asian-ness. And so, like, you do do all types of, like, running from your own culture, feeling like your family is something that doesn't let you fit in. And, uh, I mean, for me, like, it made me comfortable as an outsider because I I wasn't very good at wearing the right clothes. <laughs> or, you know, I, 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 had a, I had many phases. I had a preppy phase. I had a, you know, I had a, a phase where I, I, I liked hip-hop a lot. I had a phase where I was, like, really into, you know, um, the scene, scene stuff and, and, like, wore my hair long and, like, I was bad at all of those things. I didn't have the right clothes. so <laughs> It's hard to be good at something that's not you. Yeah, yeah. You know, I just ended up being, like, weird and, and different. I mean, I did get in fights a lot, you know, like, I think from maybe third to, like, seventh grade, I would get in a fight, like, every year because someone said something racist to me. Not, like, real big fights, just, like, some kicking. You know? <laughs> well, good. I'm glad. They deserved some, it. Yeah. Some I'll mean, kick them right now. Some yeah. mean kicking, some harsh kicking. <laughs> Do you think that your sense of being an outsider impacts your ability to be a good journalist? Yeah, I don't know. I think, like, my first beat was covering the city of Orange and the city of San Juan Capistrano and Dana Point for the Orange County Register. And so I was there then back in a mostly all-white environment, you know, working my folksy Asian vibes or whatever. And, like, <laughs> in, in L.A., when you walk around, when you hang out, you're basically injecting yourself into all these different communities, right? And so you don't belong just because you hang out there. You know, when I go to OB Bear, it's not like I, you know, am a regular. I don't get seated immediately. <laughs> you know, I don't... Uh, OB Bear is this bar in K-Town. It's named after a former professional uh, Korean baseball association team. And... Uh, and, uh, and they have really good fried such chicken. Such good wings, yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, and so I've been going there for like four years, and I'm never going to like, you know, Jason, I know the guy's name. He's never going to learn my name. <laughs> you, know, like, you have to be content with that, you know. I think like in L.A., like you get this opportunity to check out all these different cultures, you know. Like being an outsider in them is fine. You can peer in the window, but it's up to them to like open the door, you know. And so like I think being from Tennessee it really prepared me for being a reporter because I'm just comfortable not belonging. You know? Right. One of the things that made Rebecca and I fall in love with you was a tweet that you had about sitting in a Korean Chinese restaurant. I'm going to read it. Yeah. This is like Instagramming your own tweets, mm-hmm. but we're just reading them. Oh, man. Frank, at Chunju with my parents, mm. waiter mistakes me for a Korean. I remark in Chinese to my mom that this always happens. But plot twist, the waiter is Korean Chinese. She interrupts in Chinese. She and my mom start chatting. Agree. It's because my face is too big. Own. <laughs> 
It just it it's felt so just like yeah. funny. Here's the layers in which I in which I related to that. <laughs> I feel like first of all, having a round face, let's just start there. Yeah. We're all yeah. we we all have very round faces. I have a daughter, she's almost two, and she's a big girl, like tall and big. She's a big in the best way. I WhatsApped a picture of her to a like family in Brazil, and her response was, Wow, you're Milk is very rich. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, that's obviously something that people say in Portuguese (laughs) that then got translated to English. What you're saying is my kid is fat and she is in this picture particularly and it's del- it's like it's a compliment but also <laughs> yeah, yeah um the big head insult is like really like a cross cult it's very pan asian apparently like, <laughs> you know like i didn't know this and and like after that i learned that there are lots of korean chinese people in koreatown and like i ate in another place called feng mao they have really good skewers there, like good Sichuan lamb skewers there, and it's a Korean Chinese place. And I think that's like the best Chinese restaurant like available near the West Side. Is- Korean Chinese food for like me growing up, we never ate out in restaurants. That was not a thing that my family did. But on Sundays, we would eat non-Korean food. But that would run the range from getting Subway sandwiches or Pizza Hut, which were like a real big or Brown's chicken. Those were like the big Sunday night Mm. event meals, (laughs) or we would go to a Korean Chinese restaurant. Mm. I also didn't know that that was a thing that's rare, but most of my first generation Chinese friends are like, what? You went where? Yeah, you're just like Korea borders China. You know, that's like that's like the thing that you don't need, you don't know that you have to realize. That right. And like those regions that border each other. You know, I've recently met people from those regions, and like they have food that takes from like a dumpling house on like Sixth Street or something like that. You know, they even have a part of the menu that's labeled dim sum. You know, and mm. I was like, aha, it's Asian cultural appropriation from Asian. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, but. It's really cool. Like, this is my favorite thing about L.A. is that there are all these different cultural wrinkles. One of the things that Amy and I talk a lot about is when sort of the immigrant generation comes to the States. And so they're taking big risk and also get stuck in a certain way of being or a certain understanding of what the culture is. I think about this all the time, too. And, like, when people immigrate, you know, their conception of their country and their culture is, like, frozen in time. And and you see that in the Sangro Valley. It's just, like, there's all these different periods of Chinese immigration just kind of running into each other with the oh, different values. And, like, they don't always get along with each other. They're always, like, very different, you know? Like Can you the, give an example? Like, mainland immigrants now are, like often uh, upper middle class and they often have money and they're often from like the large you know industrialized cities the first tier cities like Beijing Shanghai etc you know before it used to be mostly Guangdong and like southern Chinese immigrants you know and so these people came not because of a desire to like have American products and services and a passport but to basically escape starvation you know to get a better life um and and so, like, for my parents, they grew up in a, a certain time in Taiwan. And I think about how, you know, in a big way that makes them such, like, cultural orphans. Because when they go back to Taiwan, it's not as if they can they can function perfectly. Um, but for places like Southern California, there are, like, repeated influences. If a night market item in Taiwan gets popular, it will, you know, come to the 626 night market, you know. Mm-hmm. That makes total sense because it's like if you think about if one of us were to immigrate, our ability to hold on to what is happening here and cultural norms here would be so much easier 
than say if I think about my parents in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Like no internet, very hard to make a phone call. Mm-hmm. Like the basic things that tether us are so much easier to come by. Yeah, and now that you know we can get online with my like relatives and and mm-hmm. like you know my dad can rant about Taiwanese politics with my uncles on on Skype, you know. And now he's thinking about like re- retiring in Taiwan. Maybe I don't need to be so sad about right. it. You know? <laughs> it's something I think about that just like makes me sad. Like, oh my god, like are they ever going to belong anywhere? Mm-hmm. You know. Um, like I've traveled with my parents and my husband in Korea, and I think they have found though they probably wouldn't verbalize it. Or they kind of have a little bit, but they belong with the cohort that immigrated with them. Mm-hmm. And those are the people that get them. Those mm-hmm. are the people that have the same frustrations with their kids, their American kids, that they do. They're the ones that make a big point of traveling to Korea to touch base or like for a funeral or for a wedding. But they're also the ones that collectively feel like they don't belong there. And that that, I think, has been really significant. Yeah. I Whenever I meet Taiwanese people, I try to set our parents up together. Actually, well, I did a, a AAJA Asian American Journalists yeah. Association mm-hmm. event at uh, Pine and Crane, and then like I invited my mom so she could be like really impressed by me moderating. <laughs> but she just met Vivian, and Vivian uh, Koo is the head chef of Pine and Crane. She went to Harvard, so it just backfired because she, <laughs> then she was like really impressed with Vivian, you know. And then and then she met Vivian's mom, and then they like they hang out. You showed me. The map of your arm, which is like, <laughs> a, like a tattoo version of of the Jonathan Gold movie City of Gold, right? Like, <laughs> I'm a proud lover of the mashiness of Los Angeles, and your arm, your tattoo <laughs> of the map sort of shows that, like the main thoroughfares and how like diverse it is. What are some other ways in which you are tapping into non-Asian culture that uh-huh. feel now like they're part of you or that you connect deeply to? I mean. I regularly eat at Jewish delis. I'm trying to try them all, you know, and there's something like that has become like super comforting about being in a diner of any kind, but specifically a Jewish deli. Um, And so like that has become like one of my big comfort foods. I guess like I try to live in, you know, I've lived like on the west side, on the east side. And right now I'm kind of like uh, in West Adams. And so right now I'm checking out a lot of like barbecue places and there's like a weird glut of Jamaican food around me. And, like, there's things called, like, fish fry places where they don't have in different parts of L.A., you know? I'm constantly trying to check out, you know, the thing that I haven't checked out before and fill in all the blank spaces on the map. I do a lot of Asian things, which is hard. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's your job. No, but I think that's what I'm saying. It's like we've been talking about things existing on borders, right? Like border food. Like, I have a friend from... Bangladesh, his family's Chinese, and they made the first Chinese restaurant. You know, like, mm-hmm. there's just things that are different. I think it's also interesting to think about any real urban environment where borders exist, obviously, and people are in close proximity, but then they start getting more and more porous. Yeah. I joke a lot about, like, how I was a Jew growing up because I grew up in an all-Jewish community. I'm not Jewish, obviously. But also, do I feel a real affinity for what I learned about Jewish culture? Yeah. Yeah. I feel like it's a very fine line between thinking about like cultural flow yeah that like we all aspire to and also being just being clear but let, i know that's yours <laughs> like mm-hmm. I, I think like but pastrami is your comfort food it's true yeah. I, I <laughs> you always, can't stop that i guess i always think about is it like it's important to like grow your fluency in other cultures you know especially in a place like la 
the good thing about that is it's fun to do so and you can just like eat your way through it and like you know i would like to go to any like neighborhood in la and like know what to order you know like one of the things i'm like really sad about is i don't really know that much about mexican food and so i i keep ordering the same things or whatever and i i would like to be able to have more familiarity with that and i think like we we don't really take culture, you know, as seriously as we could. I think, like, culture is sometimes the most important lens to put on in L.A. as opposed to analyzing the economics, analyzing the, the politics, analyzing this. But if you pay attention to culture, it can be, like, far more revealing than, than anything else. Um, you spend a lot of time mentoring young journalists, and you mentioned doing this AAJA event. I'm also a proud member of the AAJA. Oh, cool. Um, to mentor young Asian journalists. And I I went to journalism school as well. I went to Medill, and there was two Asian women in the whole program. At the time, I didn't know that AAJ existed. I don't even know how um, big of a force it was at the time. This would have been in the 2001. Mm -hmm. But um, so do you have a piece of advice that you give to your mentees now, or what would you say to young people coming up? What I always look for is is someone who has a story that they want to tell, and I want that to be the reason you're going into journalism is because you have a story that you care about. I tell them to care about things because mm-hmm. when you care about things, you it shows in the work. And um, and so like lots of people, you know, they go into journalism, they just want their name in print, or they want they think it sounds cool or something. And those people don't end up being very good journalists, you know. And and we need good journalists. So <laughs> we need we need people who care about their work. We need people who care about doing it right and 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 will go the extra mile and so like you know we I I always look for people who care care about things that is such solid advice and so not cynical and so important and so resonant for me and for us in this time and all the time (laughs) all the time well I think also you know like caring about things can be really hard because if you care about them and they are struggling or it's hard to you know see progress it's it's it can be crushing but I think that's that's what all the best people are doing is care about caring about things and working on things. And maybe that's why we connected so much to Frank and why we just like kind of fell in love with him is because like kindred spirits, like we're all caring so much. And I think that idea that he had of like why storytelling is important because it's not just an explanation to the world, but also an explanation to yourself of your story. That's what that's how we started because we didn't see anything out there for us. And so we were like, let's make a space where we can see and hear ourselves. Mm-hmm. That's what we did. Hello. Mm-hmm. And we want to hear from you all series long during Mashups to Know. We want to hear your shout outs for Mashups on the Rise, who you're listening to, who's making you laugh, who's making beautiful drawings, anything. And, and let us know at yo at mashupamericans.com. Punto com. Punto com. Okay, that's it for this edition of Mashups to Know. This week has been produced by Lizzie Jacobs and the Mashup Americans Creative Studio. Our theme music is by DJ Rob Swift with additional music by A Lot Moment. Find us on social at Mashup American and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. Thank you. Bye. Ciao. Ciao.